right now. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 7. So if you have an ESV Bible uh, or black Bible that you find in one of those chairs will be on page 49. Exodus chapter 7. We're going to bring Audrey Barlow up. She's going to read for us. And so um, turn there and please stand. She'll be reading the whole chapter as we honor God's word. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring them and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and that there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, this is a, this is a story that many of us are familiar with. And Lord, it, I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 1, where it says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and you turn it wherever you will. Lord, we see that not only in Moses' day with Pharaoh, you working out your will and moving Pharaoh's heart as you will. But Lord, we know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You do not change, and today you are doing the same. And Lord, if 2020 didn't give us a, throw us another curveball with um, Ruth Ginsburg passing away, um, Lord, we are, are seeing ourselves again in another desperate times and desperate seasons. And Lord, we look to you. Lord, many across this country are pouring their, their hopes in a, in a man, either Biden or President Trump. And Lord, they're, they're, they're laying their lives down for these two men. Lord, may we, may we be focused first and foremost and understand that you are the sovereign king who has ordained everything to come to pass. And you will pick our next president. And we have our hope and our eyes fixed on you. And as we do that, we will be able to navigate the, the waters of uncertainty, of confusion, of fear even. 
because we know you are on your throne. So let as we look at the story of Exodus over these next several weeks, let our hearts be strengthened in the fact that you are the sovereign God and that you are moving not just the the president or you will not just pick the president of the United States, but you are ruling over all the kings, the presidents, the dictators of all over the world to your desired end. And that is where our hope lies in you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that uh, informs us, that empowers us. And thank you for your word that guides us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, go ahead and have a seat. Exodus chapter 7. We'll be covering the the whole chapter today. And and this morning we are about to enter round two of the great fight between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. Last week we looked at the epic fight that began in round one. We saw Moses throw a couple punches that did not seem to phase Pharaoh. And we will see the same going forward. The, The time of feeling one another out as fighters is over. And now the haymakers are coming. Uh, The Lord is about to land some punches on Pharaoh, some deadly blows on Pharaoh over the next several weeks that we will look at, and they begin today. And these haymakers, these blows will serve as a warning for Pharaoh and all of Egypt so that they would not harden their hearts, but they would recognize that the Lord is the one true and living God. They would humble themselves, they would repent and trust in Him and forsake the godless system that they had in Egypt. So we're going to see today and over the next several weeks. And that's the same true for today. That, that holds true for us this morning. What, what gods are you worshiping? Are, are, are you and I, are we worshiping the one true and living God or are we worshiping the godless society around us? This text in Exodus chapter 7 that we're coming helps us to, to look inward at our own hearts to see where our hearts lie, where our loyalties lie. And Lord, we pray that they lie with Yahweh, the one true and living God, that we don't harden our hearts when we hear His words to us and that we receive them by joy and they are life to us and they lead us through these days. So let's watch and learn with anticipation on how the Lord accomplished this in Moses and Aaron, but also translate that into our day this morning. The first thing we see is the the encouragement of Yahweh in Exodus 1, 1 through 7. The encouragement of Yahweh. We looked at this last week, but we saw how Exodus chapter 6 ended. It ended with Moses and Aaron kind of walking back to the Lord with their tail between the legs, right? Because Pharaoh didn't heed their words. Moses thought this was going to be an easy joint after Exodus chapter 3. And he was just going to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh was going to be like, sure, Moses, whatever you want. But we know that wasn't the case. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He did not listen. And we see the end of Exodus chapter 6. Moses shows his doubt, saying, behold, I am unskilled in speech. How will then Pharaoh listen to me? Because he knew he had to get back out there. And Moses is again, he's, he's doubting in his, uh, not only in his own abilities, but also maybe even in the Lord at this point. So the Lord comes alongside and encourages Moses to get back out here. And he says this in chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, see Moses, look, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. It's kind of an interesting statement. Obviously, Moses didn't become God like Yahweh, but he would become God's representative. Aaron would become his prophet because to the Egyptians, they they didn't believe in unseen deities. All their deities, as we will see, take some kind of form, some kind of physical form, something that is tangible physically that they they can see, touch, taste, and smell. And so when, when Moses came to Pharaoh the first time and said, hey, there's, I, I represent this unseen God, let my people go, Pharaoh was having none of it. They didn't believe in that. Therefore, God makes Moses his physical representation, his physical rep here on earth, and Aaron will serve as Moses' prophet so that Pharaoh will actually give ear and heed to what Moses and them are saying. So it's like this. It's a way to say that in hearing Moses and observing all that Moses does and Aaron does, empowered by God, Moses would be hearing from God himself. Verse 2, the Lord commands Moses, his prophet, to go before Pharaoh. And he says this, you shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. 
Now, over and over, we're going to see this happen. Moses and Aaron are going to be faithful to filling and, and fulfilling the commands that all that, uh, that the God has given them. And we will see this phrase in every plague, this constant phrase throughout Exodus, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses. And again, that's fulfilling what Moses and Aaron are do, to do. They're only to speak what, Mo, what, what the, the Lord God tells them to speak. Nothing more and nothing less. And we know that Moses has a, a speech problem, an impediment. We, we saw that was one of his excuses in Exodus chapter 3. And, Mo, and the Lord says, well, this is why I gave you Aaron, Moses. I'm going to speak to you directly, Moses. And then you tell your brother Aaron what to say. And then Aaron will take it to Pharaoh. And he will be the one to speak on your behalf. And as you do this, let's not any words get lost in translation. Do not edit my words. Some of these words are going to be hard. Some of them are going to be tough to say, but do not edit them. Do exactly as I command. Speak exactly as I command you. And what this is telling us is that the word of the Lord takes his word very, very seriously. He takes his words very, very seriously. We see here at the beginning of Exodus, he takes them seriously. You only say what I command you to say, Moses. We say maybe in the middle, even Jesus himself in the New Testament took the Lord's words seriously. Where this is what he said in John chapter 12. Jesus says, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So we even see Jesus fulfilling this command and following this command. You speak only what Yahweh gives you to speak. And then we see at the end of the Bible, in summary, in the book of Revelation chapter 22, it says that no prophet should add or take away from the words of this prophecy. For if you do that, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. So God takes his word seriously. And because God takes his word seriously, we at the crossing take his word seriously. And this seriousness informs our preaching. This is why we go through books of the Bible. This is why we teach through books of the Bible. Because we believe that God's word, every word in here is inspired by God. These men that were carried along by the Holy Spirit, speaking on God's behalf, as 2 Timothy 3 says, that these words are God-breathed. His very words that lead, guide, and direct us. And that's why we teach through books of the Bible. We believe that, again, every word that formed all these sentences, that formed these books and these letters, inform us on how to live. Give us the great themes of, of Scripture, such as redemption, God's sovereignty, His holiness, our sinfulness, the gospel and how someone is saved. It, it gives us convictions on how we live our wise, lives as men and women in our, our roles, as uh, husbands and fathers, as um, wives and mothers, as children as workers. It informs us. It gives us the convictions on how we live. Like John Fable said back in the day, he said this, the scriptures teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most comfortable way of dying. God takes his word seriously. So, so do we here at the crossing. So do we here at the crossing. And just like Moses and Aaron were to take God's word seriously, the commands of the Lord, and speak only what he gives us, we are to do the same. Again, the, we are now his royal reps. We are Yahweh's royal reps, his ambassadors. And he has commanded us to go into the world and preach the gospel to every tribe, to every nation, to every country. So you and I are called to the same standard. So therefore, as, as followers of Jesus, as ambassadors of the true King, let us be faithful to proclaim the words of the Lord. Nothing more and nothing less. Well, we also see, again, the Lord is encouraging him by, by giving him the words. Moses, I'm going to encourage you. You are my royal reps here on earth. I, I have given you the words to say through Aaron. So, so be encouraged. And it's almost like kind of, because look at number three. Look at verse three. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Again, think about how he ended in, in chapter 6. Moses is like, I got nothing. Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. And, and God encourages him by saying, well, you're right. <laughs> you're right, Moses. <laughs> Pharaoh will not listen to you. So how's that encouragement? How's that supposed to encourage Moses? Well, again, it's just showing to 
God's sovereignty over every person, even Pharaoh. Again, I quote that, that Proverbs in Proverbs 21 about how the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it where it wills. That's why he's encouraging Moses. Moses, your job as the prophet, our job as an ambassadors, is just to go out and proclaim what God has called us to proclaim. To go out and proclaim the gospel, and God will take care of the fruit. He will take care of the person who's hearing it, and he will deal with their hearts. Our responsibility is just to be faithful and being true ambassadors and proclaiming what God has called us to proclaim. And God will take care of the rest. You see, we see this phrase again that I will harden Pharaoh's heart. We see this, I think, three or four times in chapter 7. This is, again, a major theme that we looked at starting in chapter 4 last week. And it will go through chapter 14, this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And we said last week that sometimes we'll see the Lord will harden his heart. Other times we'll see it will just say, Pharaoh's heart will be hardened like here. And other times it will say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so let me just give you a little bit more information and insight to this. There's two words that um, the Lord will use through the Holy Spirit to define uh, Pharaoh's hardening of the heart. They're two different words. When it's from the Lord, when it says the Lord will harden his heart, that means to, to make strong, to strengthen. Uh, in other words, to fortify it. And then when it talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart, it means that he will make it heavy that he will make it heavy. So what's being said here, what's happening is the Lord is solidifying what's already in Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart, you see, Pharaoh is not neutral here. When, when Moses and Aaron come to speak to Pharaoh, he's not like neutral. He could go either way. No, Pharaoh is a wicked man. He's a wicked man. He, 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 he falls in the line of Adam in chapter 3 when Adam sinned. Then sin follows every man and woman since that you are born with a hard heart. You're born with a way away from God. You want nothing to do with him. Pharaoh's heart is hard and we see it in his actions. He's carrying on the same legacy of the Pharaohs before him, which is wickedness. He's an, he's, he's an enslaving a whole, a whole nation of people plus then millions upon millions. He is a ruthless dictator treating people like animals. He's also the center of a godless worship where he exalts himself as God and he wants people to worship him. Pharaoh is a wicked man. His heart is hard right now. So when we see that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, this is judgment on Pharaoh because he is a wicked man. His heart is hard because of sin. And us on this side of the cross, we can look through this. I believe Romans chapter 1 does a good job kind of informing us on how to look at Pharaoh. What's happening in Pharaoh's heart and with the Lord. In Romans 1, uh, in verse 24 and 31, and a little bit before that, we know Romans 1 talks about kind of this state where the gospel goes out, but people hear the gospel, but again, because of their hearts, because of their heart, they, they suppress the truth. They want nothing... What, whatever to do with the truth. And this is what's happening with Pharaoh. Moses is coming and giving them the revelation of God and, 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 and Pharaoh is suppressing that truth. He doesn't want to hear it. He's rejecting that truth. Therefore, after hearing it over and over and over again, which we'll see, finally the Lord just gives judgment. In Romans 1, 24 through 31, we see this phrase three times. The Lord gave them over. The Lord is giving Pharaoh over to his hard heart now. This is what you want, Pharaoh? Okay, this is what I'm going to give you. I'm going to solidify it. And we see the same thing happening in Romans 1 where it says, the Lord gave them over to their lust. The Lord gave them over to their degrading passions. The Lord gave them over to their depraved minds. And we're going to see this throughout Exodus all the way through chapter 14. Moving on to verse, seven, uh, verse 4. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Egypt, a turn of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians, you should underline this because this is a main theme, a main thread of this, of what the Lord's trying to get through. The Egyptians, all of them shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Verse six. Now Moses and Aaron did so. They obeyed, even though they're doubting, even though they're even doubting the Lord, even though they're doubting their own ability. What do we see them do? We see them act by faith and not by sight. They obey the Lord immediately. They follow him out. Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them. And verse 7, this is a great verse. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. 
I love this. I love, I love the details we get. There's a reason why God has given us these details on how old Moses and Aaron are. Moses, 80 years old. Aaron, 83. Moses, as we know, he spent 40 years of training in Egypt. Then he spent another 40 years in the desert being trained up by the Lord. And now it's time for Moses to lead. He's 80 years old. It's time for him to, to step up and be God's ambassador, to carry the torch. And this is what I don't want you to miss. This is what I want you to hear. Sometimes your greatest call, sometimes your greatest call, sometimes your greatest impact for the Lord will happen when you're older in age. Don't miss that. A lot of times, especially in America, right, we put all the emphasis on youth and the vibrancy. But in Scripture, what you see throughout is a lot of times these guys are, and gals are older. They've been marinated in life, in their experiences. And sometimes the Lord will use you. Your greatest ministry, your greatest impact might come when you are older in age. You guys remember Caleb and Joshua, right? They were, they were men that, that, that Moses sent out, the 12 spies, to look over the promised land. You guys remember those guys? They were about 40, 45 years old. And we see um, um, that the Joshua calls them young men at that age. So if you're over 40 like me, there's still some hope, right? We're still considered young. Well, after they enter the land, Moses dies. Joshua takes over. And now he's leading. In Joshua 14.10, it says this. And now behold, this is Caleb speaking. The Lord has kept me alive. The Lord has kept me alive. We see, we see Caleb's faith in the providence of God. This is why the Lord has kept me alive. Just as he said, these 45 years ago, since the time that the Lord spoke the words to Moses to send them to the promised land, to, 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 be, to be the spies. 45 years ago, he said. And he says this, And now, behold, this day I am 85 years old. And he says this in verse 11, I am stronger today as I was in the day of Moses when he sent me. My strength is now as my strength as it was for then, for war and and going and coming. So now give me this hill, this country of which the Lord spoke to me on that day. Doesn't that inspire you? Here's this 85-year-old man that is pumped because he knows the Lord. He says, I want that hill, Lord. Give me that hill. He's still vibrant. He still wants to get after it for the Lord. So this example of Moses and Caleb serves as a lesson to us that we should never give up on the Lord's promises. That we should never retire from being the Lord's ambassadors. That He will use each and every one of us until our final breath. And sometimes our greatest impact on the kingdom will be when we are older in age. John Piper wrote a book that a lot of young people write. We, we pass out. And do we have it in our, in our thing, Daniel? Do we have it out in the bookstore? Book, book Don't Waste Your Life. Don't Waste Your Life. It's a great book. We have a lot of people. And, and the premise of the book is, is not to waste your life. And, and Piper has this quote in there that talks about, if your ultimate goal in life is to retire early. So he's really talking to the American dream here. If the ultimate goal of your life and my life is to retire early, go to Florida, play golf all day and collect seashells, then you've missed it as a Christian. You don't understand what God calls us to as ambassadors. In other words, you waste your life. And here we see just the opposite of Caleb and Moses. They're not on the beach collecting seashells. They're not playing golf. They still have a passion and heart to get after it for the Lord. One said this, only one life will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's a great model for us for life. There's a lot of good things out there. Hey, playing golf is great. Collecting seashells is great. But it's not what's ultimate. What's ultimate is you and I being used by the Lord until our dying breath. So if you will follow God with your whole heart and depend on His strength alone, you will be able to thrive even in the later years of your life. That should bring you encouragement. I know that brings me encouragement. That excites me. You see, because in America, we, we kind of look at getting old as like, oh man, I don't want to get old. Man, I embrace that. I don't know about you, but I love moving forward of every seasons of life, especially since we had five kids under seven. I mean, they were like, man, Lord, please get us through those first couple years, right? And now I'm loving them, kicking them out of the house. We've had three leave the house. We're going to have, we got two more still there, but they're going to be gone here in the Lord next two years, you know? And me and mama are going to be having a great time with them gone, right? Um, 
love my kids. But the point is, is like we embrace each season that the Lord gives us. We, we train them up. We move them out so the Lord can use them. And then Rita and I can look and say, how are we going to spend the next number of years serving the Lord and how he's given us this life? So what, a, what an exciting thing. Second, we see the staff of Yahweh in Exodus 7, 8 through 13. The staff of Yahweh. I love this. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working miracles. There's that again. He needs to see something tangible if he's going to believe you. Prove yourself by working miracles. Then you shall say to Aaron, take the staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded them. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Now, can you see Pharaoh when Moses and Aaron come in a second time, can you just see Pharaoh like, oh my gosh, here these guys again a second time. Who, who let these guys in? Who let these guys in the door? Whoever's standing at the front door, you know, you're going to be fired, right? Because you let these guys come back again. And now I said, all right, you guys are here, so you guys might prove some. Prove who you are. And we see that the Lord Moses has uh, this staff with him. If you guys remember this staff, the staff has been with him since Exodus chapter 3, right? Moses was shepherding. He went up to Mount Sinai, and the Lord said, Hey, Moses, when he met him at the burning bush, he goes, What's that in your hand? As a shepherd, that was his staff. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 20, we see his staff gets a name, right? We name our cars. We name other things, right? Moses named his staff. God named his staff, and he called it the staff of God. Don't you love that? The staff of God. I love that. This is what Moses and Aaron had. And Aaron takes Moses' staff, he casts it on the ground, and it becomes a snake. How many of you wish you had a staff of God when witnessing to your friends? Go ahead and raise your hand. Right? How cool would that be? That would be awesome, unless you like got Indiana Jones uh, right, syndrome and you hate snakes, right? Then that would kind of suck, right? Because you're like, man, let me do the work of God. You throw it out, it becomes a snake, and it freaks you out more than it freaks out the other person you're doing it with, right? The staff of God. It turns into a snake. In verse 11, we read, Then Pharaoh summoned his wise men, his sorcerers, his magicians of Egypt. And we, and we know the name of two, at least two of these guys in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Janus and Jambres, it says. We know the name of these two of these guys in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It informs us. And it says, They also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and became serpents, plural, but Aaron's staff, singular, swallowed up their staffs, pure, plural. But 13, Pharaoh's heart was still hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. We need to understand here the reason why the Lord did this miracle first, even before the plagues, by turning his staff into a statement is, is, is the Egyptians loved magic. They, they, they loved sorcery. Now, when we think of magicians, we think of Las Vegas, right? We think of, if you're in my generation, you know, we'll say 40 and up, you think of David Copperfield. If you're 40 and down, you think of who? David Blaine, right? David Blaine, the illusionist, right? Um, we think of these guys. This is not what we're talking about here. This is what's not being described in Exodus. We're not talking about illusionists. We're not talking about people that have sleight of hand. We're talking about magicians Jambres and Jambres that have demonic powers. This is a spiritual warfare, what's going down here. These guys have tapped into uh, the, the, the world dominated by Satan and his demonic powers. We see this throughout the, uh, the New Testament as well, in 1 Thessalonians and other places, that this is very, very real. Ephesians, Ephesians 4 gives us a whole, uh, Ephesians 6 gives us a whole section on this, on the, on, the, on the spiritual battle that we will go through here, Lord willing, in a couple years. But what's going down here is spiritual warfare. Some commentators try to explain the ability of Janus and Jambres to, 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 um, to do the same thing at the Lord, this counterfeit miracle as, as sleight of hand, like they're, they're uh, snake charmers or, or something along that, like an illusionist. But that's not what's going on. What's going on is these guys have tapped into the spiritual world. These guys, if they're going to play a board game on Friday night, they're playing with a Ouija board, okay? That's what they're, they're doing here. They're tapped into this. And here's what's going on. The reason why the Lord does this first, turns the staff into a snake, is because this snake was a prominent goddess of Egypt. Uh, a prominent goddess of Egypt named Wajet. W-A-D-J-E-T or G-E-T. 
the snake was the physical representation of this god. She kind of ruled southern e- Egypt. And we have a couple pictures of uh, King Tut. You guys remember King Tut, right? So we see here, up on the top of the head, we have on the left side, we have like a vulture bird. That was the god that ruled the north. The, the right side, the snake, the cobra, was the wajet. That's what they worship, and that kind of ruled the southern kingdom. And, and Wajah was a, is a cobra that signified royalty, that signified power, that signified sovereignty, that signified deity. So by King Tut having this on his <coughs> head, the, the people looked at Pharaoh as one that would worship this. This was a major, major god. There were some, I think, there were hundreds of gods in Egypt, but there were like 80 prominent ones, and this was one of the main ones. So there's the point. The point is when God's staff becomes a snake and swallows up the other staffs that become snake. God swallows up Wajet. It is the Lord demonstrating his ultimate sovereignty over the godless system of Egypt. That's what's happening here. The Lord is showing himself to be the one true God, to get Pharaoh's attention that, that Moses and his prophet Aaron, when they cast down that, they are representing the one true God that just dominated, and the one snake ate up all the other snakes, literally swallowed them up. This is what's happening here. What's happening here is the Lord is done being uh, nice in dealing with Pharaoh. Remember, we looked at last week when Moses went to Pharaoh, and he said, please, will you let my people grow, right? Like Moses was being nice. He's like, man, pretty please, will you let my people go? We'll have some party favors, you know, we'll have a good time, but just let us go. That's over. Moses' heart is hard. I mean, uh, uh, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He's rebelling. His pride is seeked up. He's being stubborn. He's standing face to face against Moses and literally against the Lord. He will not let his people go. So the Lord is demonstrating who the ultimate God is, who is the true God. And circle that word swallow. That word swallow means to destroy, to engulf. We'll see it again in Exodus chapter 15 on the, the Song of Moses. And, that, and it's going to talk about how the, the, the earth swallowed up uh, Pharaoh's army. It's when the Red Sea comes on, it swallows them up. And again, it's a, it's a pointer, it's a predictor to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. To the greatest miracle, the greatest sign to ever happen, and that was the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, this is the implication of the resurrection of Jesus, the power behind the resurrection of Jesus and its implications. 1 Corinthians 15 says, and death is swallowed up in victory. And that's what we, that's, that's what we hold on to. This word swallow points us to what the greatest sign is in the resurrection. You know, earlier we said, man, it would be great to have the, the staff of God, but we have something even greater than the staff of God. We have the gospel, and we look back, and we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no greater sign, wonder, miracle that we can point to than the resurrection of Christ. And there is ample evidence throughout history of the resurrection of Jesus. So when you are witnessing to someone, you don't, you don't need the staff of God. You need the gospel. You need to point to the resurrection of Jesus and watch that this is the only miracle that can swallow up, that can deal with our sin, is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, we see that death is swallowed up in victory. And that leads us to our third point, the plagues of Yahweh. The plagues of Yahweh, Exodus 7, 14 through 25. And we are going to now observe the Lord really making His power, His name, His presence felt among the whole nation of Israel by striking its lifeline. The first plague, the Nile River. We see that, that Moses and Aaron have first went to Pharaoh. We see that then he went to the priests. And now we're going to see that Moses and Aaron are going to make the Lord known to the people of Egypt. Exodus 7, starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. See it again. He refuses to let the people go. He's weighing his heart in. This is his pride. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the banks of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand your staff that you turn into a serpent. 
And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Again, that's the main thing. This is what's going down here. This is why he's, the Lord is doing these things, so that the world may know who he is. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, shall be turned to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. So first and foremost, the Lord deals with Wajet, one of the other major goddesses. And now he hits another god. And as we see, as we go through these, these plagues over the next couple weeks, we're going to see that each one of these gods, each one of these plagues represents striking down of an Egyptian God. Again, the Lord is done playing around and he is tearing down the godless system of Egypt. So all the world, in particular the Egyptians, will know that he is the one true and living God. The Nile was literally the lifeblood of Egypt. And really at the whole world. The whole world was, was, was really at the mercy of Egypt. There was the world power then and the Nile was what fed that power. You guys remember when we went through uh, Genesis when there was a, a massive... Um, um, not plague, a massive, uh, help me out here, famine, thank you, famine in the land with Jacob and Joseph. The whole world looked to Egypt. They, they flocked to Egypt because of the Nile River and the resources it had with water and the plenty of all the crops around. It's some of the most fertile land in all the world. We have a picture of it uh, from, the, from the satellite, picture of Egypt, and you can see that you have this desert and then this green is the Nile River. And you can see how fertile it is, how lush it is, how productive it is. And so this is why uh, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile. The, the god of the Nile was named Happy. Happy. H-A-P-I. Happy was the god of the Nile. <clears throat> one of them. I think there was three. He was the main one. And one of the main things about the Nile is the reason why it could, could feed these lands is Every year, they would ha- it would have a flood. It would flood. It would overflow its banks, and it would just take all the sediment, all the good, rich soil, and it would just flood all of Egypt's land with this fertile soil so they could grow their crops, so they could feed their animals. I mean, it was, it was literally the lifeblood of Egypt. And when it says in verse 15 that the Pharaoh was going down to the water in the morning, most commentators think that this was a daily occurrence where Pharaoh was going down uh, to the Nile to worship happy to give offerings to happy for the abundance of what the Nile produced for them. So again, God is not subtle about what he is doing and who he's doing it to. He is striking at the life, at the heartbeat of Egypt and their gods. And his next God that he takes down is happy. He wants to reveal himself again in his power, not only to Pharaoh, not only to their priests, but also the people of Egypt. And this is what's happening. And we see again, because of Pharaoh's disobedience for not letting the people go, for not heeding the first warning um, with the staffs and the snakes, we see this come about. We see this judgment come upon Pharaoh because of his disobedience, because of his rebellion, because of his pride. And we see that Moses strikes, Aaron strikes it with the staff of God, the Nile River, and it all becomes blood. Everything becomes blood. And it strikes in one of the main food sources of Egypt was that of the fish. The fish are totally wiped out. Again, as well as the whole water source for crops, for for livestock, and for themselves. And it lasts about seven days. This is what is happening. Again, there are a number of skeptics, secular commentators that kind of explain away the, the Nile becoming blood. They try and say, well, it's like, well, there's a lot of red clay around the Nile River, and all the red clay kind of got in there and kind of tinted the, the Nile River red. There's another one that's called a red tide. Maybe if you're in the south in Florida and some of those areas down there, you've heard of red tide. Who's heard of a red tide before, right? You get this red algae that kind of comes in and it kind of turns the water red. But make no mistake, that's not what happens here. The word that the author uses, Moses uses, is blood. It's plasma, right? This is blood that's flowing in the Nile River. Now, if you're a vampire, that's like heaven on earth, right? That's if you're a vampire. But of course, vampires don't exist. That's not what's happening here. And here's the other thing, is Egyptians hated the sight of blood. 
How, how many of you guys hate the sight of blood? You see blood and you're like, man, count me out, right? That was the Egyptians. They had an aversion to blood. They wanted nothing to do with blood. That's why they never did any blood sacrifices. You never re- hear about them doing any kind of blood sacrifices, right? Because they hated that. And so when the Lord attacks the lifeblood of Egypt, the Nile River, and turns it to blood, not only is he making a statement spiritually, but he's making it also, again, physically, visibly. He's engaging all the senses so the Egyptians would be like freaking out that his power is being made known. Verse 18 said that the Nile would stink. But look at the emphasis in verse 21, especially if you're from the south. It didn't just stink. It what? It stank, right? Yeah. The Bible's funny, man. That's funny. Have you guys ever been about around a body of water, river, lake, ocean, and you've had some dead fish on its banks and its beaches? I mean, just one or two fish in that place is like, it reeks, right? Can you imagine every single fish being dead in blood floating up? I mean, there's a reason why I think the Lord highlights the sense of smell, right? Because when we smell something funky, I mean, it affects us. It can wreck us all physically, right? I mean, especially us with little kids. When, you, you know, our kids would throw up and you smell that. Some, that that's an instant reflex. You're like, you're, you're going to throw up because you smelt it, right? I mean, the Lord is making a point again here physically, tangibly, that they would see and recognize that the Lord is God. He is the one and only. Well, this is an interesting verse. Verse 22 the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. They're like, what? Why in the world would they do the same thing? I mean, if I was fair, I'd be like, dude, guys, see the blood? Turn it to water. You know, change it back, right? Wouldn't you? But they do the same thing. Why is that? I don't know. I'm sure they got fired right after that. I'm sure, right? But then we come to some of the, the saddest verses, again, of all of Scripture. Again, Pharaoh's heart remained what? Hardened. The Lord continued to fortify the hardness of his heart. And it says he would not listen to them as the Lord said. Verse 23 says, Pharaoh turned and went to his house and he did not even take this to heart. Now, if we're just dealing with Pharaoh, it's sad. But what makes this thing so even worse and even sadder is who was really affected. Look at verse 24. In all of what? the Egyptians. His whole country. His whole country was affected because of his pride. Because of his arrogance. If we just go back a couple verses, I mean, think of this. If we just go back a couple verses and Pharaoh didn't harden his own heart, right? Would actually receive the revelation of God that Moses and Aaron gave that that would humble, that would see his sin, his rebellion. If he would have repented, All he would have had is a couple snakes that would have got eaten up, right? And that would have been done with it. But because of his arrogance, because of his pride, every single person that he was ruling over, that he was responsible for, felt it. Felt his sin. Felt his rebellion. This is a sad verse. And ultimately, as we we began, it's like the main reason why I think this is here. It's a, it's, it's a massive warning. It was a massive warning to, to Egypt back then about the Lord declaring who He is. This, this is who I am. Repent, believe, turn. And what we'll see is some Egyptians do. Some Egyptians, by the time we come to the, to the when they exodus, some Egyptians actually receive the truth. They become believers and followers of Yahweh. But the majority of them don't. This is not only a warning to them, but it's also a warning for us not to harden our hearts towards the Lord and His commands. First and foremost, if you're listening online or you're here, you're you're wrestling with what does it mean to follow the Lord? As you're hearing these stories, as you're hearing these judgments, as you're hearing God declare who He is, the sovereign King that rules, the the, the response is, don't be like Pharaoh. Don't, Don't be like Pharaoh. Don't harden your heart. Don't turn away and just go, go outside, get in your car, and go on as life as it may. Humble yourself. 
See your need for a Savior. See your need for Jesus. See your need for your sin to be swallowed up. And it can only be swallowed up as we see in 1 Corinthians 15 by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Your repentance of your sin and your embracing Him. And then if you are a Christian, if you are here, and especially if you lead people, and, and you could be a leader first and foremost in your own family, you're leading people. You could, be, you could be the leader in your friend group. You could be the leader at work. You could lead your own business. Recognize what happens when we lead in our pride, in our arrogance, in our stubbornness. This hit me right between the eyes. It's like, holy cow, there's a, there's a lot of people that, that I tend, the Lord has given me leadership with. And, and man, this is a huge responsibility that I would, I would walk in humility and not in my own pride and not in my own stubbornness. So first and foremost, if you're sitting there, take that away as well if you're a leader, which all you guys are. All you guys are leading someone. So again, lead in humility and not in arrogance and pride like Pharaoh. Because it, your decisions affect more than you. It has a trickle-down effect to many, many other people. But secondly, again, just individually, this is where we start. This warning of hardening our hearts. Really do an inventory check of your own heart. The, the Scripture tells us to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. That's, that's one of the main reasons why Exodus and these stories are here. For us as believers to look back and test ourselves, to see where our hearts are. Are they hard? Are we hard? Do we hear God's word and then harden our heart? Or do we hear God's word and humbly obey his words? Proverbs 28, 14 says this, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Hebrews chapter 3 is, is really all about this. This is a major theme in Hebrews. Again, looking back and talking in the context of Moses' story in verses uh, 8 of chapter 3, it says, he, the, the, the author is pleading with you, today, if you hear His voice, if you hear the Lord's voice, verse 8 says, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Going all the way back to Moses in his day of rebellion in the desert. It says, do not harden your hearts. Verse 12 says this, take care, brothers. So he's talking to Christians now. He's talking to Christians, believers, those who follow Jesus. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another every day as long as still called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a warning to you and to me, even if we're in Christ, that there's still a daily battle that happens in us because of sin. Now, you need to hear this. If we have tasted justifying grace, if we have uh, repented of our sins and trusted in Christ's life, death, and resurrection for us, He was our substitute on the cross and paid for our sins, and we believe by faith in what He has done for us, we are justified, we're counted not guilty. That's the verdict that comes from the throne room of heaven. And if you have tasted justifying grace, you need to understand that you are secure in Christ. Now when God looks down upon you, He doesn't see a sinner, He sees a saint. He sees you as a child of a king, not a rebel of the king. And I don't know about you, but just knowing my battle and daily life, this is where I cling day in and day out. This is why I love to, to wake up early before the sun rises sometimes and just observe the sun rising from the east because that's a visual picture to us that the Lord's mercies and His steadfast love renews each and every morning. And my identity in Christ is free. A saint. Because of this justifying grace. So that causes my heart to worship. It causes my heart to worship. It causes my heart to be like, man, when Sundays come around, I want to be with God's people. I want to hear God's people sing the gospel to one another. I want to be praying for one another. I want to hear God's word being preached because of what Christ has done for me. Because I recognize that if Christ didn't interrupt my life, if He didn't come in and take my hard heart, as the New Covenant says, and give me a heart of flesh, gives me the ability to see that I would be still just like Pharaoh. 
because of his justifying grace, you and I now have our eyes open to embrace God and see truly what grace is. Unmerited favor. And when we see it for what it truly is, it causes us to worship. So one of these warnings, even though it's warning us, there should be, it should propel us to worship because we are under the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. That is who we are. That is our identity. And that's where we will always be. <coughs> because Romans says there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So it causes us to worship. But it also, again, it's a warning for us. Because every day we still have the battle, again, of the presence of sin in us. And that won't be uh, eradicated until the glorification. So we still need to battle. And it tells us how to battle. It tells us that we need to battle in community. Not, not, not isolated. Not as Lone Ranger Christians by ourselves out there in the world. No, we need one another. And we need to recognize this in each other's lives, that we need to be on a daily basis thinking about our friends, our family members, those are in our life group, those are in the crossing, those are in other Christians, that they need to be encouraged about fighting the good fight of faith, about keeping your identity in Christ and what He has done for you. So that's another takeaway. As we walk out these doors, one, let us worship the Lord for what He's done in our heart for justifying grace, but let us also be active in encouraging one another and exhorting one another so that the hardness of sin doesn't take over us. This is what we see in Exodus. This is what is about to begin over the next several chapters, is these warnings to Egypt and warnings to us so that we can know without a shadow of a doubt as we walk out those doors that because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can know the one and true and living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, this section of Scripture. Lord, we preach this because it's in your word. And it's tough to preach. It's tough to hear. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would give us an extra measure of grace of people at the cross in here. First, that if there's anyone in here has a hard heart, Lord, we pray that your spirit would go and invade their soul, that you would regenerate their heart, that you would give them justifying grace. They would see their sin and their need for you as they've been floundering around in this world with no hope and no peace, trying all the different kinds of gods and goddesses out there that, would, that, that promises life and that promises satisfaction, but they find none. Or maybe they find it in you today and they would not turn their back and just walk indoors, but they will embrace the gospel. They will embrace Jesus. And for us of us that have done that, Lord, may we worship you. May we thank you as we see your grace and mercy that you have given to us, that you have lavished on us. As we sung here, though we sin, your grace, your mercy is more. Is more. And we rest in that as our identities, that we see our lives as as saints of children of God, and we walk in that. And when we do fall, we know that we don't beat ourselves up and know that you are mad of us, but we, but we know that because of your grace and mercy, you love us. And you will do that to the end for all eternity. I pray that every person that walks out this door, that listens to this sermon online, would know that truth. Today is the day of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.